Well, I'm ready to go whenever. Who's in charge? You in charge? Is Adam in charge or anyone in charge? There's Adam. Let's, hey, I'm in. Yeah, I was just going to say hi to everyone. Thanks, everyone, for, for coming out. Yeah, we might have a few people come and join us in a little bit, but uh, I didn't really have too much to say at the beginning. I was just going to kind of going to pray and then hand over to you, Dave, if that's all right. Yep. Um, all right, cool. Well, again, welcome, everyone. Lord, um, we just want to lift this, this evening up to you. Um, Jesus, we, we thank you for your words. We thank you for how it impacts our lives and is such uh, an excellent compass of how we should live our lives and treat each other. And I just pray that you will um, reveal uh, that deeper to each of us tonight as we um, deep dive into the book of Revelation, God, that you will reveal more about yourself and more of who you are and that we will fall more in love with you, Lord Jesus. We will be more confident in your words. Uh, we thank you for Dave for joining us. I just pray that you'll bless him. Thank you for his heart to uh, to come and be with us. Um, we've been looking forward to this for a while, and I just pray that you'll bless him, give him um, your words to say, and I pray that you'll give us ears to hear what you have to say as well, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, so... If, uh, just kind of wanted to point out again, I've posted the link to, there's a Slido, which is kind of like a question, question asking platform. Um, the link is in the chat just now. If you haven't put any um, questions in, you can still add them as we go through. And uh, once um, we'll probably get onto those pretty soon, I imagine, Dave. And then uh, you can kind of give us your thoughts on each of those. I, I can read them out and then uh, we'll go from there. So uh, feel free to add questions, yeah. upvote questions live. It's all good. So, um, uh, I mean, I'm doing this all off the top of my head, so it's just going to come out not as a, you know, you, usually uh, I have a, a presentation prepared um, if I do Saturday seminars or if I'm teaching somewhere on it, but in this informal Q&A context, uh, context tonight, I'm just going to share a, a kind of a broad picture and then we'll pick up some of the questions and any kind of questions or interaction, I'm uh, more than happy to entertain. Uh, if you don't, um, uh, you know, and, and one of the reasons I like Q&A is because it's no use just talking into the wind and answering all the questions that nobody's really interested in. Uh, meanwhile, you're avoiding the things that they really do want to know about. And uh, Revelation, uh, you know, is a great mystery uh, about it. And the word mystery is used a couple times in the book. And the short uh, guide to Revelation that I wrote about four or five years ago, and I'm just re reprint, uh, republishing a second edition, I call it Mystery Explained. Uh, and uh, a lot of us shy away from Revelation. It's almost like we're afraid of it or, you know, we run across a lot of crackpot predictions and stuff like that. And um, you hear the joke that people crack, well, I'm a pan-millennialist, so I'll pan out in the end. And then people kind of just walk away from it. But I think that's quite unacceptable because it's the last book in the Bible. 
it actually holds the key to the fulfillment of the story of the Bible, running from Genesis to the end. And I think that um, Satan has done a pretty good job of twisting and distorting it and in the process getting people to just walk away from it, throw up their hands in the air and give up. So uh, Revelation was written to uh, seven churches. Now, every number in the book of Revelation is significant and symbolic. Um, and uh, the symbolism uh, isn't just because it's symbolic doesn't mean it, it doesn't mean anything. It, it, but the meaning has to be interpreted by uh, the Old Testament. And so a revelation is full of symbols, uh, numbers and pictures and strange creatures and portrayals of events happening um, that uh, can be interpreted one, or, uh, one of two ways. Uh, the way that uh, a lot of popular, um, what we call dispensationalist teaching, which is the kind of stuff that you see uh, in the Left Behind series and books like that, movies like that, um, Revelation is interpreted by the latest uh, news events that are coming out of the Middle East or wherever. And uh, consequently, there's an endless series of predictions made that don't come true. And then nobody ever apologizes for them not coming true. And they go back and make more predictions that don't come true. And the problem is that Revelation needs to be interpreted by the Old Testament. In the book of Revelation, it has 404 verses. And in those 404 verses, uh, and I often, if I'm speaking on this, I'll do a little quiz and offer a prize for the person that gets the correct answer, closest to the correct answer. But uh, in the 404 verses of Revelation, there are a very large number of allusions to the Old Testament. And uh, people usually, when I ask the question, people will usually say, well, 50 or 75 or 100 or 150. But actually, there are over 500 allusions to the Old Testament in 404 verses. Now, I wasn't very good at math, but that's somewhere around 1.25 uh, allusions per verse. And in fact, there are more allusions to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation than there are in every single other book of the New Testament put together. So you cannot possibly begin to understand the, the book of Revelation unless you know your Old Testament. And the readers of the book of Revelation, the people to whom John was writing, um, knew their Old Testament. And they were prepared to look up the verses and, and see what they meant. And so at the very beginning of the book of Revelation, it says that Revelation is uh, meant to be interpreted symbolically. I should get my phone here and I'll just read uh, the verse. Uh, so right in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, uh, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants. Now that word show means, uh, in the New Testament, it means to show by symbolic or pictorial means. So right off there, the revelation is going to be given by means of symbolic pictures. And then... Uh, God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. And then the next phrase is, he made it known. And this word means to make known through symbolic uh, means or symbolic visions. 
And we find out pretty soon that John is interpreting a symbolic uh, vision. John is alluding to a symbolic, the symbolic vision that King Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter two of Daniel of the, that statue with the four parts to it. And uh, the reference was to four historical kingdoms that were going to come. Um, and so, and then in the, at the end of all that, uh, uh, another kingdom was going to arise, which is the kingdom of God, which was going to shatter the latter of those kingdoms and become a great mountain filling the whole earth, which is why Jesus talks about um, if you fall on the stone, it will shatter you and so on. And uh, Jesus was referring, also was referring to that picture in Daniel. So um, Daniel uh, is, so, so uh, John here is, is, is in the very first verse, uses two particular words, which, which mean uh, to make known through symbolic means. So what that means is everything that's going to unfold and all these strange pictures and plagues and so on and so forth um, have to be interpreted uh, symbolically. Um, and if you don't interpret them, if you just interpret them literally, you won't get the meaning right. You have to interpret them symbolically. Well, does that mean they don't have a meaning or they don't have any historical meaning? No, it doesn't. It means you have to go back to the Old Testament to discover what the meaning actually is. So, for instance, um, uh, the, New Te the uh, book of Revelation talks about the church as uh, a lampstand. And actually, that's one of the symbols that Revelation itself interprets in chapter one. It identifies the lampstands as the churches. And though the lampstand reappears with the two witnesses in chapter 11, um, so we know it has something to do with the churches. Now, even there, there's an Old Testament symbolism because it's rooted in the lampstand um, that stood in the, in the uh, tabernacle before the presence of God. And uh, that in turn goes back to the tree of life in the garden. But the lampstands, uh, the source of light, um, and the knowledge of God uh, are interpreted as the church. And, and you can understand why that makes sense, because we are, um, we stand before the presence of God. His light through the anointing oil of the Spirit is on us, and we're called to shed light in the darkness, in this dark world. So the lampstands are the churches. Um, then uh, other things like, for instance, Locusts. Well, what are the locusts? Well, if you go back to Joel, you discover that the locusts actually represent enemy armies that are coming against God's people. So if you interpret uh, the um, picture literally as meaning there's going to be a plague of locusts in the last days, you're going to miss the actual meaning. It's talking about an enemy attack on the people of God, the, the uh, attack of the forces of Satan on, on, on God's people. And so Revelation is full of that kind of stuff. And it's written to uh, seven churches. Now, seven, as you know, is the number uh, of God. Uh, it's also the number of completion because God created the world in seven days and rested on the seventh day. And so uh, when it says seven churches, those seven churches that, that were actually the ones that the book was written to, um, are representative of the church as a whole. And so what that means is 
that the message of Revelation isn't just for those seven churches, it's for all of us today. And uh, the number, um, so seven and multiples of seven are uh, appear in Revelation. Um, and uh, the number six appears, of course, six is the number of uh, mankind and humanity and rebellion against God. Uh, the number 12 appears. 12 is the number of God's government, and first of all, in the tribes of Israel, and then secondly, as representing the church with the 12 apostles. And so uh, a thousand in the Old Testament is the number of, it represents an indefinitely large number, just like Peter says, with the Lord a day, this is a thousand years. So all these numbers are symbolic, but they represent something real. And so uh, I know I'm just shooting stuff at you, but I'm trying to paint a very broad picture. And I, and I do this to make one simple point that revelation must be understood according to the biblical symbolism. It's those 500 allusions to the Old Testament in the 404 verses. That's the key. Uh, and if you have a study Bible and you go down the, you know, uh, little fine print, tiny print, uh, biblical references in the column, you'll see uh, many, many, many of those references come up and you can follow them yourself or you can, you know, do, you know, buy my book or something. I'm not here to flog a book, but I mean, I explain, that's the, one of the things I do and it is I explain what all of those Old Testament references are and the significance that they have. So that's one big point that I want to make. Revelation has to be understood symbolically or, or else you won't understand it at all. Now, um, the second point is that uh, in chapters four and five, uh, that's after the introduction in chapter one, and then in chapters two and three, you get the message to the seven churches. And um, these churches are uh, in, in a time of uh, trial and persecution. And uh, the message of the book of Revelation to suffering Christians is uh, hang in there. Uh, you may be uh, persecuted. You may lose your job because you're a Christian. Uh, you may even die because you're a Christian. But don't compromise because if you hold on to the end, the reward that God has for you is greater than anything this world could offer. And so Revelation is, is actually a book written to a suffering church that is making its way through a time of tribulation. And, uh, uh, and the message is don't compromise, hang in there, uh, because if you do, uh, to those that overcome, I will give, and at each of the uh, seven churches that are addressed in chapters two and three, a specific promise is given to each of those churches and every one of those promises is fulfilled in Revelation 21, 22 in the New Jerusalem. So, uh, and so uh, the, the message of Revelation is not addressed. It's not intended to be uh, sort of speculative fodder for when Jesus is going to return. It's a pastoral prophetic letter to Christians saying you're living in a fallen world you're living in a world where 
the enemy and his agents are very powerful. They are corrupting human governments. They are even entering the church itself in the uh, form of false religion. And uh, you're going to suffer. But if you take a stand for Christ and you keep at it, God is faithful. He will protect you spiritually. You will not fall away from your faith. And uh, he has an incredible reward that is awaiting you in this magnificent new Jerusalem that's to come. And so he addresses the seven churches. And then in chapters four and five, that's where the visionary portion uh, of the book begins. And that runs all the way to the end. And John gets this series of visions, one after the other. And he simply writes them down in the order in which he sees them. So um, actually, it's not a, it doesn't depict events that occur in chronological order because some of the visions, later visions, go back to previous periods of time. Uh, actually, some of the visions recapitulate one another. I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. But at the beginning, in chapters four and five, he has this picture of God uh, in chapter four, and then Christ comes into it in chapter five, and they're in the heavenly uh, courtroom, throne room of Almighty God. John's lifted up into the presence of God, and he sees uh, God seated in his throne, and he sees these extraordinary angelic creatures, 24 <laughs> elders and four living creatures. Uh, and the 24, and remember in the churches, each one of the churches is addressed through an angel. Um, in chapters two and three, which indicates that an angel is assigned to every local church. I find that kind of encouraging, that an angel is assigned, and if an angel was assigned to those seven churches and they're representative of the universal church, an angel is assigned to Lifehouse Church as well. And so, um, so they're angels assigned to protect churches. And uh, then in chapter four, he sees these 24 elders. Now the number is significant because it represents the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the Lamb joined together. That's the covenant people of God through all of history. The faithful people amongst the people of Israel and the church composed of members uh, of people of every nation. And when you put them together, uh, you get the 24 elders, the 12 plus the 12 the government of the old covenant, the government of the new covenant. And because these angelic uh, beings uh, rep in some way uh, are, are protective of or represent the churches before God in the same way that each church has a local sort of, uh, each local church has an angel assigned to it, these 24 are super angels who represent the covenant people of God throughout the ages. Uh, and they are right there in the presence of God. And then there are these four living creatures. And Ezekiel saw the same creatures and describes them similarly. Uh, the, I think the lion, ox, the lamb, and one had the face of a man. And they uh, represent all of creation uh, as, you know, angelic beings who... Uh, express in some way the government of God over all of creation, and uh, they reflect the fact that God uh, created the universe in order to reflect his glory and to honor and glorify him. And so all of these uh, beings, 
um, John sees in this vision in chapter four, uh, in the presence of God, glorifying him and so on. And then as it rolls over into chapter five, um, what we've got is this son of man appearing. Uh, It's borrowed right out of Daniel chapter seven. And what I mean by that is that John was seeing the same thing that Daniel saw, even as Ezekiel saw, and and by the way, Isaiah also saw some of these same heavenly beings. Um, Daniel also had a heavenly vision in in which he saw uh, the Son of Man appearing before the Ancient of Days to receive his kingdom, which obviously we know is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Daniel had this incredible vision, and God said, well, you're to seal it all up because it isn't for now. Um, But John says what Daniel saw is now beginning to happen. And uh, Christ uh, enters the uh, 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 throne room of God. He appears before the Father, and he receives uh, the authority of God. He sits down at the right hand of the Father and so on and in Revelation chapter 5. And, um, and so uh, Revelation is absolutely full of the divinity of Christ. Uh, there are a number of passages in Revelation for instance, the description of Christ in chapter one, where he has the, you know, the, the shining face and the, the fire around him and so on. And um, a number of descriptions of Christ in the book of Revelation uh, take passages in the Old Testament that describe God and apply them to Christ. And so uh, the, the Revelation is full of the divinity of Christ, and it's also um, full of the Holy Spirit, except the Holy Spirit is referred to as the sevenfold spirit or the seven spirits before the throne, which remember the number seven refers to the totality. And so the totality of the spirit is the Holy Spirit. So the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all there in that heavenly throne room. And Christ receives this book that's sealed and he begins to open it. Now, remember that this is occurring at the ascension of Jesus Christ to the throne of God. That's Revelation chapter 5. So that occurred after his death and his resurrection. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And uh, at that moment, he received this book, and he begins to unleash uh, a series of judgments upon the earth. And so... uh, those judgments in the seven seals uh, cover the entire period of history from the moment of the ascension of Jesus Christ until his return. And we know that because uh, he immediately, as soon as he sat down at the right hand of the Father, Revelation 5 and into the beginning of chapter 6, says that he immediately opened the first seal. So um, the seals which represent uh, judgments uh, upon the earth, commence at the ascension of Christ. We know that they conclude with the return of Christ because at the end of the series of judgments, there is a depiction of the return of Christ and the final battle and the eternal kingdom. And so um, uh, now I'm going to go on a little bit longer and then stop because otherwise it's going to be... total overload probably already is but i'm just remember i'm just trying to paint a broad picture um and so in the book of revelation we get um 
we get four sets of seven judgments, one of which is seals, the second of which is trumpets, the third of which uh, I call visions of conflict, which is in chapter 12, 13, and 14, and the fourth of which is the bowls. And there are four sets of seven judgments. They all portray the same series of events in the same way that the four gospels portray uh, the same events in the life of Jesus, but each from a different perspective. And this, the, the significance is in the numbers because the number four in the Bible is the number of the earth. It goes back to the four rivers of Genesis, four corners of the earth and so on. So four is the number of the earth. Seven is the number of God and of totality. So the four sets of seven judgments represent the complete historical judgment through all the ages of God upon the earth for its disobedience and rebellion. And uh, so that's what we call a recapitulation. So in each of the four, they take up and repeat the same series of events. Uh, and why did God do this? Well, that's how God chose to deliver this series of visions. It's the same way as why did God uh, give four gospels when he could have given one? It's just to give a fuller perspective. And, and so, uh, so I, I'll say one more thing, which, which uh, to, to set the book in perspective, which is that uh, Revelation is a portrayal of a second exodus. So it takes the concept of the exodus and it repeats it. Uh, what I mean by that is that the children of Israel uh, were in bondage in Egypt. Uh, they crossed over the Red Sea. They spent 42 years in uh, the wilderness. In the wilderness, uh, it was a period of protection. It was also a period of temptation and a period of attack. Um, and at the end of that period of time, and during that 42 years, that's two years up until the spies went out and 40 years of judgment after the spies went out and brought back the bad report, 42 years, they had 42 encampments. And at the end of that, they crossed the Jordan and uh, they entered the promised land at Jericho. Now, I, if you're all with me, I think. We all understand, if we know anything about our Bible, uh, that that's the story of the Exodus. So the re Revelation replays the Exodus. Egypt is identified with Babylon as the place of darkness and slavery. And uh, Pharaoh in the Old Testament is portrayed as having the spirit of a dragon within him. And so this same spirit of the dragon, which is identified as the devil in Revelation, is in Babylon. That's the place where people are held ca captive. So the, the children of God, that's Christians, the Christian church, crosses over a new Red Sea. And the Red Sea is referred to in Revelation 12 as, trying to, as the devil trying to swallow up with a flood the people of God. And the, but the people of God are protected and they cross this Red Sea and they cross into a wilderness. And in the wilderness, they are protected 
for 42 months. Now that's drawn from the book of Daniel. Um, but the 42 months or the 1360 days, it's not accidental, the number, because it refers to the 42 years that the children of Israel were in the wilderness and the 42 encampments they had. And so we're pictured as living in a wilderness, which is identified in the book of Revelation over and over and over again as a, as a period of tribulation. And um, we live in this great tribulation, which commences at the resurrection and ascension of Christ and ends with the return of Christ. During this time, the children, of, the children of God, that you and me, are portrayed as being in a wilderness where God is protecting us, but at the same time, we're being attacked and threatened our, and being pressured to compromise our faith through idolatry, even as the children of Israel were in the, in the desert. And at the end of the 42 months, we cross over into the promised land at the sounding, Revelation says, of the seventh trumpet. And Revelation says at the sounding of the seventh trumpet, the ark of God is revealed and there's an earthquake. Now, where in the Bible do you have the seventh trumpet sounding, the ark of God in full public view, and an earthquake? Adam, you can answer that. Where is that? It sounds like the story of Jericho. It's Jericho. And Jericho is, is when they crossed over into the promised land that's the first place they hit so in teaching the book of revelation um it has been twisted beyond recognition by a, a, a dispensationalist teaching um which did not even exist until the 19th century but has become popular especially in north america and uh, has focused the entire book of Revelation as a picture of events that are going to happen in the last seven years before the return of Jesus Christ. There's no evidence whatsoever within Revelation for that. There's no seven-year period. And the tribulation, not only in Revelation, but in the rest of the New Testament, the word tribulation always refers to the Christian life as we are living it now. The Apostle Paul used it a couple dozen times to refer to the life that we live now. We face tribulation. John says in chapter 1, I think verse 3, I am your partner in the tribulation and the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're living in the tribulation now. Now, does the book of Revelation address events that occur immediately before the return of Christ? Yes, it does. When you get down to the sixth and seventh element of each one of these four sets of judgments, it portrays the events at the very end of history immediately preceding the return of Christ. But most of the book portrays judgments that God sends uh, upon an unbelieving world. Now, if the book of Revelation is a replay of the Exodus, then is it a coincidence that the judgments of Revelation, particularly the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments, are borrowed from the book of Exodus? All they are are a repetition of the Exodus plagues. Uh, and so uh, 
And the point of revelation is that God is sending judgments uh, upon an unbelieving world in order that some people would grab a hold of the significance of them and repent. But for those that don't, they will be hardened in their heart and unbelief in the same way Pharaoh and most of the Egyptians were. And so we're facing, and I did a eight minute segment uh, on this um, that is on my, I think I sent it to Adam anyway, so he can make it available. But I did an eight minute segment on this a couple months ago um, because I realized back at the beginning of January that this coronavirus situation that we're facing is a classic example of one of the plagues of Revelation. Uh, and people have been grappling with, you know, what is the meaning of it? Um, you know, it, it, can God send something evil? Uh, and then other groups of people are sitting back saying, oh, God has nothing to do with this, but, you know, he's kind of wringing his hands, but he doesn't really know what to do about it. And I think like neither of those answers are acceptable biblically. Um, and Revelation provides the answer because Revelation teaches that God is in authority even over the devil. And that what happens is that God in his, and as we know that God created this world good and that the only reason there's sin and sickness and suffering in the world is because of our rebellion against God. But every so often, God uh, lifts his hand of mercy. The world only exists today because God is merciful. He has the right to obliterate this world at any moment because the amount of the amount of sin and rebellion and so on in it. But for the sake of those yet to be born that are going to be saved, God mercifully withholds his hand of judgment. However, every so often, it's like he lifts his hand off of, off of the sort of pressure cooker and he allows the enemy uh, greater leeway to cause havoc. Now, why does God do that? He does it even in his mercy because he wants to warn people that bad as this may be that we are going through, there is far worse awaiting us if we don't repent and come to faith in Christ. And so God lifts his hand off of the sin and rebellion of this world and lifts his hand off of his merciful restraint and allows judgment to occur in a measure in order to awaken a slumbering world. And we live in a world which worships, certainly in the West, worships the gods of medicine and technology. We believe we're invincible. It's an idolatry. It's not worship of the true God. And so God comes along and says, well, I'll just kick the foundations out from under your idols and show you that, yes, they work until they don't work anymore. Because the day will come for every one of us when the doctor will say to us, I'm sorry, there's nothing more I can do for you because none of us is going to live forever. But we need to be prepared before that day comes that we're ready to enter eternity. And so God takes his hand of restraint off for a season, which is what I think is happening now. And I, I think that's his intention toward the world. But I also think that, uh, and Revelation teaches, and I've taught this for years, that when judgments come, they are meant to shock complacent believers back into a deeper walk with God. And our Western church is complacent and compromised. And uh, I've been gratified by the increase of prayer and uh, seeking of God 
that's been occurring in these last months. Uh, if we expect revival to come, then revival is not going to begin in the, with the lost. It's going to begin with the saved. And if we're not revived, then how is God going to bring the lost into a compromised church? So uh, what is happening now is entirely consistent uh, with the picture that God gives um, of the plagues and judgments that he sends throughout history in judgment against the world system. And uh, so I think that in one sense, if you ask me, is it a sign of, is it a sign of the return of the Lord? Um, I'm going to say, well, first of all, I can't say that because Jesus said, no man knoweth the day nor the hour, not even the son, but only the father. And I'm sick and tired of too many people who have gone around predicting um, exactly or more or less when Jesus is going to return, when Jesus himself said he doesn't know. So uh, to me, um, if we're wise, uh, we're not going to focus on what we think are signs of the Lord's imminent return. What we need to do is be ready, as Jesus said, for you know not when the master is going to come back to the house. You better be doing your job when he comes. So it's my job to live as if he might return tonight. Do I think he's going to return tonight? I don't think so. But I say that very cautiously because of what Jesus warned us against in terms of predicting. But Jesus said one thing that the gospel of the kingdom must be preached in every nation, Matthew 24 and 14, and then the end shall come. Now, every nation is the Greek word ethnos, and it doesn't mean the nation of Canada. It means every people group, every ethnic group, of which there are thousands in the world. And if you look at Wycliffe Bible translators, for instance, they will tell you how many thousand uh, ethnic groups there are in the world and how many thousands still had not even had the word of God translated into their language. So there's, there's quite a few more nations or peoples that the gospel of the kingdom has to come to before the Lord can return. Uh, so that's why uh, I'm very cautious about people who think the Lord is going to return at any time, even though we need to live on the basis that he might return, certainly live on the basis that you know, I might slip in a banana peel. My wife leaves lying around the house because she's sick of me after 37 years and break my neck and, and enter into the presence of the Lord. And that'll be the end of it. And I better be prepared to face the Lord. Well, fair enough. But uh, do I think the Lord's going to return tonight? Probably not. Um, so I, I, I keep praying, Lord, please don't return until the least win the Stanley Cup again. But I'm not even confident that that's going to happen because I still remember the last time they won it, and I was a kid, uh, and that was a very long time ago. Anyways, so I've, I've deluged you for about 40 minutes with information. I apologize. It's the only way to kind of throw something at you in terms of the big picture. Um, and uh, like I said, uh, uh, you know, I've, I wrote the book. Um, I wrote... Uh, I collaborated with uh, a, 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 the man who a man called G.K. Beale, who's probably the world's leading authority in the book of Revelation. He wrote, uh, you know, a 1,500-page commentary, uh, and I uh, condensed it uh, working with him 
into a, a 500 page commentary, which is called the shorter commentary. It's only shorter in that it's shorter than 1500 pages. But my wife took one look at it and said, you got to write one for me. So I wrote a real short one, uh, which tries to explain to the average person what the book of Revelation means. And that's always a backup to what I'm saying, uh, because you can't possibly expound everything in the book of Revelation in, you know, 45 minutes. Uh, but you can give a kind of a taster and answer some some questions in it and try to to get people thinking. Sometimes I've had explosive reactions. People have become very angry. People on numerous occasions have said to me, you've, you've you know, uh, put a bomb underneath everything I've ever believed about the end times uh, and so on. And I, I don't apologize for that because uh, it's the word of God. And uh, if we grasp a hold of the true message of Revelation, then it's very encouraging for each of us because think about it. If God put a book in the Bible that was only relevant for the last seven years before Jesus returned, then what's the point of that for the rest of us through all the centuries? There's no point at all. So for that reason alone, it doesn't make sense to me. Um, the book of Revelation was addressed to Christians who lived in the first century. That's who it was addressed to. Every single part has to be relevant to them. They were living in some of those visions that John was uh, describing. They were living in them then. We are still living in them now, and we will be living in them. And Christians of future generations, until the Lord returns, will be living in the same set of events. So I'm going to stop. Mark, um, Mark, I'm calling you Mark, Adam. That's hopeless. Uh, that's your dad. Um, I can, I can go to. You've got the questions in front of you there, Dave. Would you want me to read them? Uh, uh, I will. Uh, I do have them here, so I can take a look. Um, so, as they get upvoted, then the the ones with the most votes will go towards the top. So if anyone wants, if you want, if anyone wants to add a question or upvote a question, then the ones with the most votes. Okay. Well, I'll, I've I've just got. Uh, I'll I'll start with what I've got here. Um, this is probably what's the latest that's come in. Um, please share your views on the incorrect question mark teaching of the rapture, and what the correct view of the tribulation is, and discuss pre and post millennial. Well, that's about a ten-hour talk. Um, so. Um, I, I get frequently asked, I've been doing Instagram lives with a friend of mine for the last few weeks, and uh, the rapture is one thing that comes up, the mark of the beast is another thing that comes up, the seven-year tribulation and so on. Um, so uh, how shall I, uh, first of all, I do not believe in the rapture. Uh, I believe in the, in the visible return of Jesus Christ because that's all the New Testament teaches. The rapture, let me explain what the rapture is, because a lot of people just think the rapture is the return of Christ. Well, it isn't. Um, back in 1830, a young lady in Scotland had a vision, and in the vision, she saw Jesus returning to the earth secretly. Now, that's not in the Bible anywhere. No one had ever taught that in 1800 years in the history of the church. She had this vision. So there was a Bible teacher uh, at that time called John Nelson Darby. And Darby 
was obsessed with Israel. Uh, and Darby believed that God was going to restore uh, Israel to uh, the, its Middle Eastern homeland. Um, and that that was going to be the prelude to the return of Christ. And Darby had a theology. And his theology was that God has two entirely separate covenants and two entirely separate covenant people, the Jews and the church. And the two are separate and God deals with separately. And so Darby taught, and I'll bring the rapture into this in a minute, but Darby taught that, or as he began his, uh, to develop his teaching, um, he taught that God sent Jesus to this earth not to go to the cross, but to establish, uh, to be a conquering king who would establish a kingdom at Jerusalem, a literal earthly kingdom at Jerusalem. And he would restore the Davidic kingdom, that this is what Darby believed. And Jesus went to the earth to do that. Now, something went wrong. Unexpectedly, Jesus was not received by the Jewish people. He was rejected by them. He was crucified. And so God had to go to plan B. Plan B was the resurrection and the creation of the church. God did not intend to create the church. But because the Jewish people rejected God's true plan, God had to go to plan B, and he created the church. But the church is completely separate from Israel. The two have nothing to do with each other. And so the church is not, the, the, is not God's plan A, it's God's plan B. So the church is what Darby described, and to this day, the, the teachers following this point of view, which is called dispensationalism, um, to this day they teach the same thing. The church is a parenthesis, like a parenthesis of brackets in God's plan. It's not the main item, it's a secondary item. And it fills in a gap um, until God can get back to restoring, uh, to fulfilling his original plan. So God's original plan is to create a literal earthly kingdom at Jerusalem over which Jesus Christ will rule. But God has now has a problem because he's left on the earth with two uh, covenant peoples. And so he cannot deal with two at the same time. So the only way out is that the, somehow the church has to be removed. And at this point, Darby heard about this vision that this woman had in Scotland of a secret return of Christ. And he latched a hold of it as the answer to his problem. And he began to teach that Jesus would return twice, the first time secretly, the second time visibly. Uh, the visible return of Christ is what Jesus taught in the Gospels. He said, when I come back, as you'll see it like the lightning flashes from the east to the west, it will be visible to all people. Nowhere in the Bible is the secret return of Christ taught, anywhere. But Darby got it out of this wacky vision that this woman had. And so he began to teach that the church would be taken out because it solved his problem. With the church taken out at this rapture, now God can get back to his main business. He then borrowed, uh, he then took four verses at the end of Daniel chapter 9 
um, which do not refer to a seven-year tribulation. Uh, but he took four verses at the end of Daniel chapter 9. He twisted and distorted them grossly. And out of the mix came an idea of a seven-year tribulation that would occur after this rapture that he'd invented. And during this seven-year tribulation, um, uh, the Jewish people would be regathered to their homeland. They would be uh, attacked by an antichrist figure. There would be an end times battle uh, at Armageddon, uh, which incidentally is not a literal place. I, I, I go into that if I have time later on. Uh, and, and then uh, with his victory at Armageddon, he would establish the literal rule of Jesus Christ on the earth that he'd intended to do 2,000 years ago. And that's called the millennium in this, in this approach, right? And so they take everything literally and without any reference to the Old Testament. So instead of understanding the millennium as a symbolic and definitely long period of time, they take it as a literal period of time and that Christ is then going to rule in this millennium, millennial kingdom. Um, and uh, so you, you, you then ask the question, well, what about the church? Well, uh, dispensationalism teaches, now I'm talking John MacArthur, I'm talking Left Behind, I'm talking Tim LaHaye, Jerry Jenkins, John Walvoord, Dallas Seminary, all these people, Jack Van Impey, dispensationalism teaches that the church exists in the New Jerusalem, uh, which hovers above the earth and is visible from the earth. And in the church, you have all these people in resurrected bodies, which are Christians, and they go up and down between the New Jerusalem and they visit the earth. And of course, in the earth, you've got Jews with mortal bodies, except many of them have unnaturally long lives and even may live a thousand years to the end of the millennium. Um, and then if a mortal, uh, and, then, and then what happens is that the temple is rebuilt, the Levitical priesthood is reinstituted, the sacrificial system is reinstituted, and uh, so dispensationalism has a massive problem with the reinstitution of the law when the book of Hebrews chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10, as well as the rest of the New Testament, teaches that the law is done away with, the sacrificial system is done away with once and for all by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But no, the Jewish people, God has a different, different covenant with them. And even though Jesus is on the earth, having sacrificed his, his um, life on the cross, he is now presiding over a series of literal bulls, rams, and lambs being sacrificed day by day so that people can be right with God. It is ludicrous and ridiculous uh, and totally unbiblical. And so, uh, and so that in, in uh, so, but do, do, I, uh, do I believe that Christ is going to return? Absolutely I do. But I believe that he's going to return in the way that he said he was going to return. Um, now, uh, what about Israel then? Uh, am I opposed to Israel? No, I'm not opposed to Israel. Uh, as a, but the, the Bible says in Romans chapter 11 that God still has a concern for the Jewish people. Now, the Bible does not talk, the Bible does not state that God has any preference for the nation of Israel. 
any more than for Canada or the United States or any other country. The, the state of Israel is a secular state. Um, most of the people are ungodly and atheistic and so on. Elaine and I have been there. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I'm to some extent, I'm supportive of Israel because it has, you know, a, a measure of human rights, democracy, and so on. It has its failings as well. But God does not have any advocacy for Israel. But, and the Jewish people, from the day of Pentecost onward, the Jewish people, the faithful remnant among the Jewish people are the foundation of the body of Christ. And we, as non-Jews, are incorporated into it. God has only one covenant. He has only one covenant people, which is the faithful Jews of the Old Testament, the faithful ones, uh, which Paul describes as the faithful remnant. They're the covenant people of God, the saved, that we'll meet in heaven, not all Jews of the Old Testament, only a minority. Um, and then uh, we are attached to them, like Paul pictures it, them as the root, and we're grafted into the tree uh, as people from every nation. And in Romans 11, it holds out the hope that before Jesus returns, there will be a widespread um, uh, return of the Jews to faith in Christ. But it won't happen in an earthly millennium. It won't happen through a sacrificial, reinstituting a, a sacrificial system, rebuilding of the temple, and so on. It'll happen by the grace of God. Uh, Jews will come and realize that Jesus is the, their Messiah, and they have more reason to believe in him than any of the rest of us do. So that kind of uh, answers the... Uh, so my, my answer in terms of the millennium, which I'm not, I'm not going to go into anymore because I'll freak, everybody's had it probably by this point, but my, in brief, uh, my understanding of what Revelation teaches is that we are now living in the millennium. The church age, the age from uh, the cross to the return of Christ is described two ways uh, in um, Revelation. Number one is the, the tribulation, and uh, that's because we're living in the wilderness. Uh, and number two as the millennium, which is an indefinitely long period of time. And so, um, so that's that. Uh, question number two, if the Bible is true and it actually says no man knows the hour of the Lord's return, how profitable is it for us to attempt to figure out when the end will come? Well, the answer is simple. It isn't profitable. Um, and I think I've tried to say that, that, uh, uh, that, um, uh, it, it, you know, the, what we need to do is to be ready as if the Lord is going to return or as if the Lord would call us home at any time. Uh, and it has been a massive waste of resources and time and energy in the body of Christ, people who have tried to figure out and predict when the end will come. And it, by the way, has resulted in a lot of disillusionment with Christianity from people out there who are sick and fed up with that kind of um, predicting. Uh, next question, how important is it to the Christian faith to understand Revelation? Well, I think it's very important, and I'll tell you why. Because the Bible has a storyline. Um, the Bible began in a garden temple. Adam and Eve are portrayed in Genesis as priests in a garden temple. I haven't got time to explain why that's the case, but I can. Um, 
Uh, so Adam and Eve are, are portrayed as priests in something that is uh, the temple of God, is the dwelling place of God, and it's also a, a beautiful garden-like setting. And Adam and Eve are given the commission to push out the boundaries of the garden to the ends of the earth, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, right? And so Adam and Eve, they fail in that commission. They rebel and um, they're cast out. Uh, and, but but God's, God is God and he is going to find a way of, of getting his plan done. So he chooses another man. Um, after bringing judgment on the earth, he chooses Noah. And he says the same thing to Noah. Noah, be fruitful and multiply and push the boundaries of the kingdom out. Well, uh, as the generations go by, uh, Noah's story peters out in the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And at the Tower of Babel, the judgment of God is, comes down upon the nations of the earth and he casts them out and disperses them across the face of the earth and confuses their tongues so they can't understand each other. And, uh, and so that all comes to nothing. But then God takes this man out of the middle of Babel, which means Babylon, who's Abraham. He's an idol worshiper, according to the Bible. But God, by grace, picks Abraham and says, I'm going to build something through you that is going to fulfill my plan to win the nations of the earth and fill the earth with my knowledge, right? As I'd originally intended to do. And so the whole saga of Abraham uh, begins. And we know that Jesus is presented in the New Testament as Abraham's descendant. And Abraham is our father of faith, Romans chapter four. So that through Abraham, God said in Genesis 12 and 15 and 18, he said, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And through us as the body of Christ, that promise has come to fulfillment. We're the children of Abraham. And so uh, God, uh, through initially, God gave Israel a commission to be a light to the nations and to, to push out those boundaries as well. And Israel fell into rebellion and was destroyed and exiled and so on, and they failed. And so Jesus comes along and God says, uh, I'm going to give you the commission I gave to Adam, which is why Jesus is presented as the second Adam in the New Testament. And so uh, that's why at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus gives the Great Commission. The Great Commission is nothing more than a replay of God's original commission to Adam to go and extend the boundaries of the kingdom from Judea, Samaria, and away to the ends of the earth, and lo, I am with you always. That's the Great Commission. Disciple all nations. And Pentecost comes along, and Pentecost undoes the damage of Babel. It's the same word is used in, about Babel in, in Genesis 11 as in, is used in Acts 2 of Pentecost. And the tongues signify the fact that Babel, the curse of Babel, where all those foreign nations, all the nations of the world, earth were consigned to the worship of demons and false gods and so on. Now God says, I am equipping my people with divine ability to take the gospel to every single people group on the earth because the commission to fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord that I gave to Adam is going to be fulfilled through the second Adam. And so um, this explains why uh, the garden temple 
of Eden reappears in the tabernacle of Moses. And the cherubim are there, the lampstand representing the tree of life, the pomegranates and the gourds are all, all represent the, the garden. And this little miniature replica of the garden of Eden is the dwelling place of God, but only one man can enter it once a year, right? And so then when Jesus comes, he takes this and all of a sudden, you and I become the temple of the living God and the presence of God that was, uh, that was restricted within the, that little cubical sphere of the Holy of Holies is now released within all of God's people who go to the ends of the earth to extend the temple of God. But the full, final fulfillment of it is in Revelation 21 and 22. And this is why it's so important for us to understand the meaning of the book of Revelation. Because the last two chapters of the Bible are the fulfillment of the first two chapters. Because in Revelation 21 and 22, the garden temple of Eden is restored. And the river that was, was the four rivers that were in Genesis is the same river that Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel 47 flowing from the throne and now reappears. Uh, the tree of life is there in the new Jerusalem. Um, the Lord God almighty is present. It's, it's his temple. There's no need of a physical temple because God is the temple and all of us are the priests of all believers, our priests worshiping him. And uh, the temple of God has, has filled the earth. And the only difference between Eden and the New Jerusalem is that the presence of evil is cast out. Uh, and so uh, Rev Revelation completes the storyline of the Bible. And the storyline of the Bible is the loss and the restoration of the presence of God. And that's why, uh, and we as Christians, as the temple of God, because that's what Jesus uh, said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up and we are the temple of the living God, the Apostle Paul taught. We are the temple of the living God. We are the means by which the presence of God fills the earth, and, and that's the story that Revelation presents and completes. It's not about Israel, the Jewish people, reinstitution of the temple and sacrificial system, and events that are just going to happen at the end. Um, no, it's, it's about uh, the, the fulfilled plan of God that you can trace throughout all the scriptures from beginning to end. So it's incredibly important for us to get a hold of, if you, if, if you are, um, if people, people, I did a seminar, let me put it this way. I, I did a seminar uh, in a church and a lady came up to me at the end and said, um, this is the first time I've ever come up, came away from teaching on revelation where instead of being afraid and fearful of what's happening in the world, I feel peace and confident that God is in charge because that's the message of revelation that even though we may suffer, that God is on the throne and he is in charge. And this world has not gone uh, entirely to hell yet. It's ruled over by almighty God and God has his purposes and he will not let go of any of them until he has fulfilled his whole plan. So yes, it is incredibly important for uh, Christians to understand the teaching of Revelation. And, uh, and then um, here's a question, what are the last days referring to? And that's a really good question because uh, um, the last days, that phrase uh, 
refers consistently, not only in Revelation, but in the rest of the New Testament, to the period of time commencing with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Read Peter's sermon. He says, we're in the last days. Uh, James says the same thing. Hebrews says the same thing. First John says the same thing. Revelation says the same thing. The last days have been going on for 2,000 years. Now, you say, well, that sounds a bit odd. Well, listen, with the Lord, a days is a 1,000 years. So we're not operating by human time frames. We're operating by God's time frame. And so if the last days commenced from the viewpoint of all of eternity, from whenever God created the cosmos until the Lord returns, the period of time from Jesus' death and resurrection until his return is small. And these are the last days. And we have been, the, the Christians to whom John was writing in the seven churches of Asia Minor were living in the last days. The saints of the 10th century were living in the last days. We're living in the last days. Uh, that's how the New Testament defines the last days. And, uh, and so, uh, uh, is there a very end of the last days? Well, yes, obviously there is. And Revelation teaches that there will be a massive battle and persecution of the church in a very, very short period of time, immediately before the Lord returns. But we're living in the last days, they're, they're, and, and that's simply how the New Testament defines it. And so uh, everything that's in the book of Revelation is applicable to us today, except for that little, the little tiny bits that refer only to the time um, immediately prior to the Lord's return. And, you know, I mean, it's possible some of us may live to see that, but uh, quite possible that we won't. So next question is, what is the truth of the end times and where is the hope? Well, I'm trying to present the hope. Uh, the hope is that God is in charge. I, I can't remember how many times in Revelation uh, the, the word throne is used. The throne signifies the power, sovereignty, and authority of Almighty God. And Revelation is full of the throne of God. Um, and that even the devil can only operate according to limits within God, within which God allows him to operate. And so when Revelation speaks to a church that is compromised, the, the people in the seven churches are suffering. Uh, they're being asked to commit idolatry. Uh, they're being told that they, they, they'll be penalized if they have a Christian profession of faith. They may lose their job. And those things are very true in many parts of the world today for Christians. It might even wind up being true in the West for us today as, as, as Christians as well. So it's a very applicable message. But the hope is that Jesus Christ is Lord. Revelation teaches that both God and Jesus are the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first and the last letters of the uh, Greek alphabet. But what he means by that is that Jesus is Lord over the beginning of history, over the end of history, and over every single thing in between. And that at the end of all this, that God has a plan to wrap it up in a glorious way. Like somebody said, I got worried until I looked at the end of the book and discovered that we win. So that's the hope that we have, that God will keep us um, uh, somehow through everything we're going through. And whenever we die, even if we happen to be martyred for our faith, that we'll be ushered into the presence of the Lord 
in this most glorious place that will be in eternal realms of worship. So Revelation gives a great deal of hope um, to the Christian as we live in the kind of compromised and wicked world that we live in today. Um, I've, I've somewhat addressed, uh, uh, the, well, the next question is, how does the book of Daniel tie into Revelation? Now, in, in specific, I, I have addressed this uh, um, in several different ways, but uh, in specific, uh, one more thing is that in uh, the very first uh, couple of verses, or the very first verse of Revelation, and I, I, I won't go into the technicalities of it, but John is paraphrasing uh, verses out of Daniel chapter 2, where Daniel says that God gives him a vision, and the, the meaning of the vision is going to be sealed up till the end of the, 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 uh, of the end of the age. That's Daniel 12, actually. But, but in Daniel chapter 2, uh, Daniel speaks about being shown a vision, um, symbolically, uh, of things that are going to take place in the latter days. That's what, it's Daniel 2, I think, 28 and 44 and 45. So he says, God showed me a vision of what is going to be, uh, take place in the latter days. And so John takes the same words out of the Greek uh, text of Daniel. That's the Greek translation of the Hebrew and Aramaic original of Daniel. Um, the Apostle John here takes the same words that Daniel wrote, and he says, God gave me a vision uh, to show things that are going to happen. But he makes one change in Daniel's wording, whereas Daniel said, God gave me a vision to show what was going to happen in the latter days. John says that God gave me a vision. God gave a vision to show his servants the things that are going to take place soon. And the word soon means imminently, beginning now. And so what John is saying is that what Daniel was referring to in his prophetic visions, which was for the latter days and was to be sealed up, now is being unsealed and is commencing immediately. So what Daniel was prophesying for the last days, um, John says, God is kicking all that off now. And uh, like I said, that's supported by the fact that the rest of the New Testament refers to the last days as the days beginning with the death and resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. So, uh, Again, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm throwing stuff out. Some of you probably fell into a coma about half an hour ago, but uh, um, I'm just doing best I can in giving you some hooks to put your cap on and maybe go back and study uh, and so on. Uh, and so have some of the seven seals in Revelation 6 been opened? Yes. Uh, certainly the last two seals have not been opened because they relate to uh, the return of the Lord. Um, but uh, the rest of them are, are all, they're happening, they have been happening, and they will continue to happen. They're judgments that occur throughout the church age. Um, and they're, they're presented somewhat vaguely so that they can cover a multitude of different things, wars, plagues, persecutions, famines, and so on. They can cover a multitude of events where God lifts his hand off and allows a judgment to come upon the world in order that the world may listen. Now, I just 
listen today to Professor John Lennox on a video, uh, who is one of the top men in the world presenting the Christian faith to unbelievers. He has debated the top atheists in the world today. And, uh, and he said, basically, similar to what I'm telling you now, he said, this current situation with this virus has shaken the foundations of the unbelieving world, and they're listening. They're listening, whereas they weren't listening before. And you can see that in some of the online church statistics and this alpha and this type of thing. So we have an opportunity. God's shaken the foundations. There has been suffering. There has been death. That is tragic. But God is still using, God has a way of using even the worst things to bring good out of them. And God has a plan in this uh, present day in which we're living. And so uh, we need to take advantage of that. Or, and it would be tragic if it were just wasted. And if the church just went back into its complacency that it was in before, and, if, and we never reached the world. And all of this just went down as some great blip that nobody ever figured out why it happened. Um, uh, there's a question that uh, I just said, I mean, um, obviously somebody, this person has been reading uh, some of the material that I alluded to, uh, left behind type stuff. Why is there a period of 30 days after Jesus comes at the seventh trumpet? Well, the answer is there isn't any 30 days after the seventh trumpet. When Jesus comes at the seventh trumpet, uh, the resurrection of the dead occurs instantly, the final judgment occurs, and the saved enter the new Jerusalem and the unsaved are thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, somebody obviously is teaching that after the Lord returns, the Antichrist has a worship system that still exists and so on. And, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if some of these people did teach that because some of the things they teach are um, beyond uh, any, any relationship to anything that's in the Bible. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be nasty or rude to to people, but it's just, uh, it perplexes me. And I, I'm not, I can't relate the question to the Bible at all, uh, but I'm sure that it has a basis in something that somebody's legitimately read and they're confused about it. And I hope maybe I've clarified your confusion. Here's the next one. Uh, what do we need to do practically to prepare for the last days? Bug out bags? Or do I trust God for manna? Where do we go? Well, we're living in the, in the last days already. Uh, there's no preparation other than making sure your life is right before God so that if the Lord comes and takes you tonight or the Lord returns tomorrow, that you're in a good place with God and he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Um, and uh, so I don't believe back in Y2K, if anyone remembers that, um, we had a family in our church that was convinced it was the beginning of the end. And uh, they were so offended when I suggested it had nothing to do with the end and actually probably would all turn out to be a big exaggeration. Uh, they were so offended. They, after having bought $40,000, which 20 years ago was a lot of money, still is a lot of money on survival equipment and powdered bacon and stuff like that. They then left our church. And of course, Y2K came and went, nothing ever happened and so on. And they were left with $40,000 <laughs> of uh, powdered breakfast material, which they're probably still eating, and I'm afraid I don't have any sympathy for them. So I don't think we need to go into bug out bags, whatever those are, or uh, expect God for manna. Jesus is the manna. He said, I'm the manna that comes down from heaven. Uh, we have him to live on, and that's all we need. So that's my perspective on that. What do the four living beings represent? 
the lion, ox, man, the eagle. Oops, I had one of those wrong. Um, when I alluded to it, I apologize. Um, I think I said that they represent uh, the creation, the cosmos, the entirety of creation is created by God. There are these beings that God has delegated to rule over or share some of his rulership over creation, and they reflect glory back to him. And humanity is only one part of that sort of uh, aspect. Um, uh, it is interesting that um, uh, the Bible presents God as having created an angelic realm prior to having created humanity, and he has given free will to both. We know that because Satan and his agents rebelled against God because God had given them free will to do that. And so we have a fallen angelic realm. But don't forget that we also have an angelic realm reappears in the person of Michael and Gabriel and so on. Read the book of Daniel and read um, the uh, birth stories of Jesus, uh, Gabriel appearing to Mary and so on, Elizabeth. Um, and so, uh, and so uh, there is an angelic and an archangelic realm. There is, as I said, an angel assigned to every single local church. Uh, and so that is very, very real. Um, I, one of the great desires of my life is to see an angel. The closest I ever got was when in the outpouring of the spirit at Toronto Airport Church in the 90s, um, some Koreans saw angels over my wife and I as we were praying for them as a group. And uh, I wish I'd look up, looked up or had their spiritual vision uh, or whatever, but, I, but I've, I have had friends that have met angels and their remarkable stories, and I absolutely 100% believe them. Uh, so there are angels there, and these four living beings, as well as the 24 elders, are in that, that very high order of angelic uh, uh, creation that... Uh, that holds authority before God, intercedes, worships, and so on. Next question, any estimate? Well, see, here's, here's the problem we run into as to when the first rapture for the current church. Well, assuming there'll be more than one. Well, I don't believe in any rapture, but I do believe in the return of Christ. So I, I kind of think the person framing this question uh, had in mind the, the dispensationalist concept of the rapture, and then that the Lord was going to return again. Uh, but as I, I, I emphasize, the Bible only ever teaches one return of Christ. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says we're going to meet him in the air. And it uses two words, apentasis and parousia, to refer to the returning of the Lord. Those two words have very specific meaning, the Greek language. They both refer to when the emperor went out to visit one of his colonies or cities or territories and that was the appearing or um, that was the parousia the appearing of the emperor and the citizens go out to meet the emperor as he's coming to meet them and what they do then is they escort him back into the city to take up his place of rulership and that's the picture that paul uses in one thessalonians chapter 4 17 and 19 where he says it's like jesus is, is coming from heaven, and we're caught up to meet him. The question is, what happens next? What happens next is, it's not that we're taken out. No, no. Jesus is coming to this renewed world to, re to establish his total lordship over it, and we are accompanying him um, as his people 
to establish him and honor him as king. And so uh, that verse teaches the opposite of the rapture. The opposite is the rapture teaches that he takes us out. 1 Thessalonians 4 teaches that we come to bring Jesus in. And it's the same idea in Matthew 24, where it says, well, one will be taken and one will be left. Well, what is, but look in the context of that. Um, he's talking about the flood of Noah. He's talking about the return of the Lord, the judgment of God, and the flood of Noah. And he says, it'll be as it was in the days of Noah, when some were swept away in the flood, right? They were uh, taken. And Noah was the righteous one who was left. And so when Jesus says one will be taken, one will be left, he's not referring to the rapture. No, the ones that are taken are the ones that are going to be taken away and cast into the lake of fire. The ones that are left are the ones that are going to be left here to rule and reign with Christ in his new creation. So I emphasize again, there's absolutely no basis in the Bible for teaching where Jesus comes invisibly. Nobody can see it. He takes the church out and then he, then he turns the clock back, has a temple rebuilt, sacrifice instituted, and all the rest of it. There is no teaching whatsoever in the Bible that can support that. Okay, and I think I'm, I hope I'm, <laughs> hope I'm at the end here. I don't know if there's anyone still alive out there, but um, can you touch on the, uh, okay. Um, uh, okay, what, let me, I'm gonna skip over something here. What is the mark of the beast? So, um, so the, uh, the mark of the beast, so the Revelation presents three demonic entities, the dragon, the first beast, and the false prophet. They're presented in chapter 12 and 13. They're all supernatural entities. Now, the dragon is identified in uh, Revelation as the devil, as the serpent of old. So that's Satan. The first beast is a powerful demonic entity that, uh, that in, in kind of invades and influences earthly human governments to pervert them and twist them into instruments of oppression and opposition to the church. The second beast, the false prophet, is a religious demon or principality, which takes a hold of false religion. But the way the first beast is presented as having uh, suffered a fatal wound and then been resurrected. So the first beast is a demonic counterfeit of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ holds government on earth. The first beast is a demonic entity that receives a fatal wound, which was the resurrection of Christ, and yet he's resurrected, chapter 13 presents, and uh, he still holds a measure of authority. So the first beast it's a demonic counterfeit of Christ. The second beast is pictured as giving breath to statue of the first beast. Well, who, what's the breath in the Bible? That's the Holy Spirit, the Ruach of God. So the second beast is set up as a demonic counterfeit to the Holy Spirit. So now you have it. There's a demonic counterfeit to the Trinity. The dragon, the first beast, and the false prophet are the demonic counterfeit of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if you follow through Revelation 12 and 13, it's, it becomes really clear. And so what is the number of fallen humanity in rebellion against God? It's the number six. Now, the number six, who's behind that? Rebellion, Satan. 
So, if you take uh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, biblically, you would associate each of them with the number seven, the number of God, because they're all God. If you take the demonic trinity, you associate each of them with the number six, which gives you six, six, six. And that is the mark of the beast. It's a symbolic reference to the demonic trinity. Now, what is the mark part? Now we figured out it doesn't refer to a person, right? There have been hundreds of attempts to identify 666 with a historical person. None of them has ever succeeded. Um, what does the mark mean? It's not a literal mark because the New Testament says, and Revelation says, there'll be a mark and a seal on your forehead and your hand also. It signifies that we belong to God. All Christians have the seal of the Spirit or the mark. It goes back to the Exodus, uh, Passover. Uh, uh, it goes back even beyond that to the protective mark that God put on Cain. So all believers have the mark of God on them. All unbelievers have the mark of the beast. Revelation teaches, chapter 14, that the mark equals the name. So to have the mark of God or Jesus is to have the name of Jesus. What does the name mean? It means ownership. It signifies ownership. To be in the name of Jesus is to be under the ownership of Jesus. To have the mark of Jesus is to be under the ownership of Jesus. To have the mark of the beast is to be under the ownership of the beast and of his henchmen, the demonic trinity. So it isn't, some people say, well, oh my goodness, I'm worried. I'm a Christian. I might fall, fall away or fall into some sin and get the mark of the beast, or it might be a microchip or a tattoo or something. Well, don't worry. If you're a Christian, you have the mark of God. It's impossible. You either two kinds of people, those that have the mark of God and those that have the mark of the beast. They're also called the saved and the unsaved. It's not a literal mark. It's a symbolic way of signifying who you belong to. And the Bible makes it very clear that everyone with the mark of the beast will be cast into the lake of fire. Everyone with the mark of God will enter the new Jerusalem. So uh, you don't have to worry about Bill Gates putting a microchip in a vaccine or something like this, which is, uh, it's just absurd. It's beyond absurd. Um, but uh, you don't have to worry about that sort of thing. If you're saved, you'll never get the mark of the beast. But everyone that is unsaved, if they're unsaved at the moment of their death, they carry that mark on them. Um, I believe that once you're a Christian, you cannot lose your salvation. That's another whole topic of contention. That happens to be what I believe, uh, for better or for worse. But what that means is you can't, cannot lose the mark of God. But the good news is you definitely can lose the mark of the beast by being transferred into the kingdom of, uh, out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's beloved son. And, and that's what we want to see. Lots of people lo losing um, the mark of the beast. Um, and so, uh, um, uh, so, uh, so someone says, is there's, if there's no rapture, there's no taking people from the earth before the tribulation. No, we're in the tribulation. We've been in the tribulation for 2000 years. And uh, in fact, um, you know, uh, the, the, the church that exists at the return of Christ will be a severely persecuted church, if I've read Revelation 11 correctly. So 
there will be a, the the tribulation will will get worse at the very end um but the church will go through it and many christians will be persecuted and die so i don't have i have a kind of a schizophrenic view don't please don't quote me on this but i believe on the one hand the gospel of the kingdom is going to every nation so i do believe that there'll be a glorious explosion of the gospel all over the world but i also believe at the time of the very end before the return of christ the hand of god's mercy will be taken completely off the earth and there will be a time of an explosion of wickedness that is a described as a very brief period of time in revelation and it will be brought to a conclusion by the glorious return of the lord jesus christ so um uh that so then um uh the what someone says why do you think the last days are coming soon well i i tried to say the last days started two thousand years ago so we're already living in them are we going to be part of the plagues yes COVID 19 uh, and there's been hundreds of others through the centuries, and there will unfortunately been, be more yet. Um, uh, um, uh, can you touch on the origins of the beliefs of the Latter-day Saints and Jehovah's Witnesses? Well, that's kind of interesting because when I described to you historically the beginning of dispensational with the crazy vision, the rapture, the millennium, and all this, um, a lot of these ideas were picked up uh, by the Mormons and the Seventh-day Adventists um, and the Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, I'm not tarring uh, everybody with the same, I mean, I'm not saying that, that uh, uh, you know, um, the left behind people, you know, they're, I disagree with them profoundly, but they're brothers in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not saying they're equivalent to Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or whatever. What I'm saying is, that uh, they picked up the idea of the secret return of Christ that was picked up by the Jehovah's Witnesses who believe that Christ secret, secret, secretly returned in 1914. The Seventh-day Adventists believe that Christ secretly returned uh, in 1870-something, I think, um, but that his secret return uh, was his moving from one department of heaven to another, and they relate it to uh, the different levels of judgment that Christ is carrying out. Uh, and the Latter-day Saints believe in, and they all believe uh, in a literal, the, the Seventh-day Adventists, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and the Mormons all picked up this idea of a millennium, of a literal earthly millennial rule. So all of these kind of aspects that um, were never in the church uh, until Darby came across this vision and invented this system. Uh, and of course, more, uh, they, they were picked up by these other groups also. Um, and, I'm, and I'm not putting them all in the same category. Seventh-day Adventists are much closer to Christianity than the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses. But it's a sign to me, it's a suspicious sign when I see the same features appearing in Jehovah's Witnesses literature, the Book of Mormon, or Seventh-day Adventist teaching, as I see in dispensationalism. That's a, that's a suspicious sign to me. I wouldn't want to be associated with Mormon teaching, Jehovah's Witness teaching, or even Seventh-day Adventist teaching. Um, and, uh, uh, and so I think that's a warning sign that there's something that's wrong here. Um, 
are you saying it's wise to uh, uh, just a minute um, uh, are you saying it's wise to mark your body in memory of the dead uh, is it wise for Christians to get cross tattoo uh, I, I don't think I've said anything about that um, and uh, and I'm not uh, you know I'm <laughs> I'm not going. I'm not here to discuss the topic of tattoos. Let's put Adam. You got a tattoo? Maybe you do. I don't know. Um, but I, I'm not here to uh, discuss the topic of tattoos. Um, I'll interject. If any, if, if that, I'm not sure who asked that question. If you need clarification on it, please feel free to email me. I'm happy to have a conversation with you. <laughs> if there's a question you have about tattoos, you know, but. Um, it kind of misses the point of, of, of what we're talking about tonight. Yeah. And please don't, and thank, thanks James. Uh, and, and maybe James has a tattoo that we don't know about that he's going to disclose. Uh, hi Lee, how are you? I'm sure you don't have one. Uh, <laughs> uh, my wife would kill me if I got one, but I do have one or two kids that have them. So um, I, uh, yeah, I'm not quite sure what's behind this. And uh, I suggest you talk to Pastor James about it. Uh, because there's there's obviously a legitimate concern that the person has who answered this question. It really doesn't have anything to do with what I'm talking about, but I sense there's a legitimate concern here that you've got. And if you talk to a uh, pastor about it, uh, that would be that would be good. And uh, and uh, and thanks, James, for helping me with that. And I I think um, someone says, who are we going to reign over? we're going to reign over the universe. And that's great news, isn't it? And that's a consistent teaching of the New Testament. Uh, Paul said, uh, why are you going to court? You know, you're going to judge angels. Uh, you know, can't you even resolve these small questions within the church now? Uh, and so uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, heaven, or at least the New Jerusalem, is, is, is not going to be, you know, you know, some of us have got kind of bored sitting around here, you know, during the last three months. Um, and everybody thinks the pastors are sitting around doing nothing, except they're more stressed than I've ever seen. Most pastors I know, they're working very hard behind the scenes. But a lot of people have been sitting around not able to work and so on. And you think, is this what the new Jerusalem is going to be like? We're sitting around twiddling our thumbs? No, it isn't. We're going to be very busy ruling over entire universes, whatever that amounts to. And so I think that's an exciting thing. We're going to reign over cosmoses that we never even knew existed. And God is certainly going to keep us busy. Uh, and it's going to be extremely fulfilling. Uh, I've now gone for an hour and a half. I've killed everyone completely. Um, and I thank you so much for being so gracious as to listen. Uh, and, and Adam I'm, or, or James, I'm quite happy to take any other uh, question or I'm quite happy to open it if you want the floor for anyone to make their own observations or comments. Yeah, we probably won't open the floor. If there's other questions, then we would do them through the, uh, we do them through the, the Slido just because there's a lot of people on this call and we could be here till midnight if we, uh, if we open the floor to uh, things. I don't know, Adam, it's your life group. I just know we've got a quite an expanded group. If you wanted to, if you, feel you can open it for a little bit then i'm going to turn my light on because i'm losing <laughs> there was i think there was there was one question there which might be a good one i think it was it was added while you were talking um it says um what other misconceptions do you often come across that we might be believing 
I, I think that one of the things that concerns me, and again, uh, I know people can be very touchy about it, um, is an obsession with Israel. And uh, I distinguish between God's love for the Jewish people uh, because Jesus was a Jew and the first Christians were all Jews. Uh, so I'm not being anti-Jewish at all. But um, we, come, we, we get an obsession with Israel is the, you know, is the center of God's purposes. It's what, uh, you know, if we look at Israel, that's going to reveal what God is going to do. And that is a fundamental misconception. Uh, and, and I know people get really touchy about it. I've had people get extremely upset because they're very invested in that concept. Uh, but I do feel that it is, it is uh, what happens is that the church be, is exactly what dispensationalism teaches. The church becomes second best. And we're only sitting around twiddling our thumbs until God can take us out of this world that Satan is ruling over uh, in a rapture so that the real event can begin. And Martin Luther said, if I knew the Lord was going to return tomorrow, I'd still plant a tree today. And I think as Christians, we need to be people who live in assurance of Jesus Christ's lordship over this world, uh, where we're going to work and take ground for God. Uh, the church is, is God's only plan. There's no other plan. There's nothing better than this on earth until the Lord returns. And, um, and, and we can confidently devote our life to the service of the kingdom of God through his church around the world in the knowledge that God has glorious purposes to fulfill. And I think that's the, what we really need to keep in front of us. Uh, but I've, I've tried to cover the, the highlights of the misconceptions that, that people have about the end times. I think I've covered most of them. I mean, I definitely feel more informed, for sure. So thank you so much, Dave. Yeah, Dave, just uh, thank you. The one more question, Adam, went into Slido. It, it's kind of already been addressed, but if it just needs clarification, then we can go there. But just before, Dave, you, you finish that last question, again, just thank you. Um, for you, you've just explained things so well. I, there's a lot of stuff that Dave's explained tonight that you may be like, I need to go over that again. And we've recorded tonight's session so you can listen to it, so you can go and look at the scriptures. Um, his book is excellent in terms of uh, mystery explained, in terms of for, you know, for to get a understanding and just go literally, you know, line by line through Revelation so you understand the you know, all the references that he's making to the, the Old Testament. And so, yeah, I just, we've been, we've been richly fed. I know uh, uh, Dave's been saying, hey, you know, maybe I've lost you along the way. And maybe he has. And if, he's, if you have felt lost along the way, that's okay. It's a big topic. You know, it's one I've only had to dive into in the last few years. And for most of my Christian life, I'd be like most people where I'd go, I don't even want to pay attention to this. Um, but having having studied a lot on this topic, it's just it's so wonderful listening to someone that can explain things at a depth that is 
a hundred times greater than the depth I have. And so it's just, David, it's so beautiful just listening to you, just how all this stuff just rolls off your tongue and the knowledge that you have and, and just all the efforts you put in to understanding this so you could explain it to us in a way that is so simple. Well, thank so you. Thank you. Seeing both of you makes us long to have another breakfast in that nice restaurant as soon as it opens. We'll be, make this on your agenda, please, after your elders. <laughs> Absolutely. We'd love that. Please give our love to your precious wife, okay? We certainly will. I'll stop interrupting Adam and give it back to you. Um, I mean, there's, there's a couple of little ones that came in, like, I planned for us to go till nine o'clock, so I don't know if anyone's keen for just a little bit more. I think there's a couple, two or three just came in, Dave, on the Slido. I don't know if you've okay. seen those. Just read them out then. Um, so one says here, how about the marriage of the lamb? Yep. So the marriage of the lamb, the, the uh, church, as you know, in the New Testament is presented as the bride of Christ. And so uh, in Revelation, there are two women portrayed, one of which is uh, in uh, chapter 17, um, which is Babylon, and she is portrayed using the Old Testament description of Jezebel. And so that's why that Jezebel spirit appears in the church at Thyatira in chapter 2. And so uh, she's got all these adornments and the jewels and all the rest of it. And then that's set off against the description of the white robes and the adornments and the jewels of the church, the bride of Christ in chapter 20. And it's deliberate. There's a deliberate contrast because of these two women that you're either in one, uh, it's you're either in one woman or you're in the other woman, but the, the woman Babylon is inside is full of death and destruction. And the outward appearance is deceptive. But the other woman, the church, the bride of Christ, the, who is going to be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, who's Jesus being pictured as the groom, um, we're the bride of Christ, which is pure inside and out uh, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, that whereby he's cleansed us. Okay, one more for you then. What does the marriage, sorry, the, I guess the marriage supper of the lamb represents uh, the, you know, the saints being united with Christ in the new Jerusalem. Uh, that, that's what it, at the resurrection of the dead, that's what it represents. And I'll add one more thing in for, for nothing that um, Revelation portrays in chapter seven and 14, uh, what happens to people when they die so Christians, when they die, um, uh, Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Paul said, absent from the body is present with the Lord. And so in Revelation 7 and 14, the deceased saints of all ages are presented worshiping in the presence of God. And we have to remember that the resurrection of the dead does not come until the return of Christ. And so in the time in between the, our physical death, and the return of Christ, we exist, and we're ref referred to in Revelation as souls to distinguish us from having our resurrection bodies. But we are co in conscious fellowship with 
the Lord Jesus Christ and Almighty God in his presence. You will never, when you die, you pass immediately into the presence of the Lord. They, I don't believe in soul sleep or anything like that. When you die, you, today you will be with me in paradise. And that's a, that's a wonderful comfort for believers, that those that have gone ahead of us are now in the presence of the Lord. And then when the Lord returns, um, those, that, that, those that have gone before will receive their resurrection bodies and as will the saved that are living at the return of Christ. And that's the moment of the marriage supper of the Lamb. So I'll just throw that in. I mean, I feel like you've kind of answered the question I was about to ask you as well. So I don't, I don't know if you read it. I didn't see you read it. No, I haven't. I'm just trying <laughs> so to what I was gonna read, read about now. What does the word refer to when it talks about first the dead in Christ will rise, uh, and though those alive will meet him in the clouds? Right. So, so uh, so that's in 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 first in in uh, uh, what's mixture of 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4, but it says that, that Jesus, when Jesus appears, uh, he will appear in the clouds. We will go to meet him, and we will escort him into his place of rulership uh, over the new creation. Because the earth is going to be, the earth and the heavens are going to be reconstituted in some way that is beyond our understanding. The Bible, under, you know, uses the terminology of the new Jerusalem and the streets of gold and et cetera in a symbolic way, but obviously it's beyond our human uh, comprehension to understand what that actually is. Um, but the point is, isn't it, the church is not going to be taken out. Jesus is coming in and we're escorting him in to that new creation. Anything else, or is that it? That's all the, the questions on the slide, eh? I've got through about four pencils while you've been talking. So, uh, I mean, thank you so much, Dave. I've, I feel so enlightened by you kind of, as James said, just kind of saying so much good truth and such deep stuff, but in like a really understandable way. I really appreciate you coming in and sharing. Thank you oh, so you're much welcome. for your time. If you, if anyone wants to buy my book, um, I, it's not that I'm trying to discourage you, but in about two months, a, a revised edition is coming out, which is going to um, include a, more material, but it's also going to look a lot nicer than the original, and it won't be any more expensive. Um, and so, uh, if I've also, and I, I've also written a book entitled Ten Things That." we get wrong about the Bible and how to fix them. And uh, so that's coming out at the same time. And there is a chapter on eschatology. They're all short chapters. Uh, the books will only be 125 pages. I, I've written it during the lockdown. Um, but uh, there is one uh, chapter of about 5,000 words, which sums all this up. If you don't want to, um, you know, if you don't want to buy my revelation book, um, and forgive me, I'm not in the business of flogging books, but I write these things just because a lot of people find them uh, helpful who want to pursue it, you know, further. And what I'm saying verbally just goes in one ear and out the other. Um, for everyone else, I did drop the link to Dave's book 
um, in the chat a little bit earlier on, but maybe I'll wait two months and get the uh, the new version of you, Dave. It it it'll it will look a lot. I was broke, to be honest, when I published the first one, and a friend set it up for me, and he did the best job he could, but it it doesn't it doesn't look very professional. Uh, there's all, I also have added material and corrected some mistakes. So the second one is being done professionally. Um, God provided uh, the money for me to do it. And uh, it will be out in about two months and it'll just be the same. Now, the only thing is there's a Kindle edition of uh, the present one, which is fine. It looks great. Uh, and I don't know whether I'll be able to bring a Kindle edition out of this new one. So if you, if you, you, if you want a, a, the Kindle, then just order what's there now. But if you want the paperback, then I'd recommend you wait for a couple of months and I can send you a reminder or something, Adam. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lifehouse. We, we felt really gutted in March when the, the shutdown happened and we were due to come visit you on a Sunday. But God willing, that'll mm -hmm. happen at some point. And uh, we love you. You're a great church. Uh, you're the, it's like going to the United Nations. That's what we, even your, your home group, Adam, it's like the United Nations. We talk about it all over the place. Nobody had even been in the country more than a few months. And I think it is a most marvelous, it was a most marvelous experience being on, on Sunday morning at Lifehouse and being in your home group to experience what heaven is going to be like in the body of Christ gathered from every nation on earth. So God bless you. And, and be encouraged in the great work that you're doing in the, in the Sasaga.